Hey everybody, it's uh, Friday and thank you for joining AM Live. Give me a thumbs up if you can hear me okay. Thank you very much for those, especially the fire emoji. I appreciate it. Um, hope you're having a good day and week. I'm really excited to be doing this. Scott Horton will be joining us today. He is the uh, host of the eponymous Scott Horton Show, enough of a really great book called, uh, sorry, he's the author of a really great book called Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terror. And uh, I listen to Scott a lot because even though we disagree a lot on domestic issues, because he's a libertarian, he's the director of the Libertarian Institute, on foreign policy, I just think there's nobody better. There's no better... An, analyst in the U.S. on the destruction of U.S. foreign policy around the world and the propaganda used to sustain it. So I'm looking forward to talking to Scott about a really big week, I think, uh, for propaganda in U.S. foreign policy with this major event in Syria with the U.S. killing the uh, most recent leader of ISIS and the ongoing crisis over Ukraine, wh where some major uh, U.S. propaganda talking points have been challenged. And for the first time, we're seeing members of the media actually pushing back on U.S. government claims, which is pretty incredible. So I am uh, talking to Scott right now and trying to get him into this room to find him. So while I deal with that, let me just first put out an alert, a, a warning to anyone listening, that this show today is going to contain some major Russian talking points. Uh, according to the uh, definition put out by the White House, because the, uh, yesterday uh, and throughout this week, in response to questions from people who are skeptical of White House claims about Russia and Ukraine, the White House has responded by basically accusing them of parroting Russian talking points. We saw that yesterday with Ned Price, the State Department spokesperson, in response to AP reporter Matt Lee when he was just um, – uh, asking for evidence for the claims from the U.S. that Russia is planning a false flag operation in Ukraine in involving crisis actors. And when Matt Lee kept pressing Ned Price for evidence, Ned Price kept responding that um, that basically Matt is uh, taking Russia's side and parroting Russian talking points. And there we go. Scott, I found you and, made, and invited you to be a speaker. So if you hear me, you should be able to accept that and become a speaker. Um, so basically, what my warning to you today is, we're going to be talking not only about Ukraine, but also about Syria, another place where if you dare question the U.S. government's claims, then you are, by definition, parroting Russian talking points. So just a trigger warning to everyone, and just be advised that today in this room, we're going to have maximum overload on Russian talking points, because we are going to be, you know, for some crazy reason, questioning U.S. government assertions and not just taking them on faith. So just be prepared for Russian talking points. And Scott, I believe <laughs> you are here now. And can you hear me okay? I can hear you just fine. Am I all right? We can hear you great. And uh, thanks for joining. This is, this is your first time on Colin, I think, right? Yeah, it sure is. Thanks for having me, man. Good to talk to you again. Well, I'm really happy to talk to you because I rely on your show and on your work to understand the world. Um, as I was saying before you came in the room that, you know, even though I bet you and I have 
major disagreements when it comes to domestic policy issues, like, for example, the role of, go of government in healthcare. When it comes to foreign policy, I think you are just the sharpest analyst we have. And I've learned so much from the work you've done, including your new book, Enough Already, which I really recommend to anybody who wants to understand what the U.S. does around the world and just the mountains of propaganda that are used to sustain it. And um, a big part well, of Well, thank book, you, Aaron. I appreciate that, man. Well, so let me just start by asking to get your response to the killing of the ISIS leader in Syria. The U.S. media, the way it's discussed, I mean, when they'll criticize Biden or they'll challenge U.S. claims, you know, they will question the legality of individual U.S. operations like the one that was just carried out in Idlib. Um, they will even question U.S. claims about what caused the civilian deaths because along with the killing of this ISIS leader, a number of civilians were killed. And it's great that there is that level of skepticism in the, in the U.S. media. But what they will not do, and what I think you do so well, is just expose the underlying policy, expose the underlying uh, regime change war in Syria and the war in Iraq, which helped lead to ISIS's rise in the first place. And then in Syria, you had the U.S. basically using ISIS, ISIS as a tool for regime change. So I'm wondering if you could talk about that, just your reaction to uh, this news of the killing of this ISIS leader. I'm blanking on his name right now. It's very long, but I will find it so I can be accurate here. And uh, and what context do you think is missing from how it's discussed in the U.S. media? Right. Well, I mean, I think you just really hit it right there. And as you know, the backstory is, you know, it sort of goes without saying because everybody knows it. But then again, not everybody knows it. And so when it goes unsaid, you know, enough times in a row, it gets really left out and, and it, you know, is not really part of the narrative. But everybody should know and it shouldn't go without saying it should be repeated all the time that this all started when America invaded Iraq in 2003, that up until that point, there had never been a suicide bombing in Iraq ever. At that point, Iraq was ruled by a secular, essentially fascist dictatorship. The Baathists are kind of commie Nazis, you know, in a way, uh, in a, with an Arabic twist. But they're essentially a secularist state which protected um, ethnic and religious minorities with a ruthless internal security force and ruled over the Shiite supermajority there um, and was terrified of bin Laden and for that matter, Islamism, even, you know, of the Muslim Brotherhood variety, much less the head chopping, suicide bombing, kamikaze strike variety. Uh, you know, he wanted nothing to do with that kind of thing. And they just lied. Aaron. They just lied in 2002. I mean, this is this year will be the 20th anniversary all year long of them lying us into Iraq War Two. And man, did they push the narrative that Saddam somehow was an ally of Osama that he was going to give the world's most dangerous weapons to bin Laden, who was then going to use them, you know, give them to his hijackers to use on us. And this was the narrative that they used to get us into that war. And then one of the major pieces of propaganda there was that this guy, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, who was the head of a small Islamist militia, hiding up in American protected, autonomous northern Iraqi Kurdistan, that he was the tie between bin Laden and Saddam Hussein, when in fact 
he was not tied to bin Laden. He had met bin Laden before and had his own training camp in Afghanistan. But he had told bin Laden, no, I don't want to join al-Qaeda. I don't want to focus on the United States. I want to kill the king of Jordan. And so that was his priority and had not joined al-Qaeda. And at the same time, he was no ally of Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein had an arrest warrant out for him. And the neocons just lied. Ahmed Chalabi and the Iraqi exiles abetted by the neoconservatives in Washington told this lie that Saddam Hussein, had, that he'd been wounded in Afghanistan and that, that Saddam had treated him in the hospital in Baghdad and even given him a fake wooden leg. And Colin Powell told at least much of this story. I don't know if he brought up the peg leg or not, but he told much of this lie in his United Nations address, which, you which know, is, supposedly by the way, cinched 19, the case. Which, by the way, Scott, is 19 years ago tomorrow was Colin Powell's speech. All right coming up on that anniversary again. And boy, was that, you know, chock full of lies. I detail a lot of them in the book. Um, but this one about Zarqawi was such a big deal because this was supposedly cinched the case of this alliance that, you know, was intolerable for America to let continue to exist in the world after September 11th, that a state as powerful as Iraq ahem, would um, be able to back a group like Al-Qaeda, which would be willing to do kamikaze attacks into civilian targets and this kind of thing. So um, that was the pretext. Now, once the war started, Zarqawi was a minor player. And the original insurgency was led mostly by Sunnis, but not entirely, um, but mostly members of the former military and members of the Ba'ath Party and just regular Iraqis who realize, especially Sunnis, who realized that they were going to be on the losing side of the new regime since the supermajority Shiite population and their political parties more specifically were coming to power at their expense now. So they were resisting. Zarqawi and his group uh, didn't become real dominant players there until after the second Battle of Fallujah in the fall of 2004, after Bush's reelection. In 04, when Mattis sent the Marines back for the second big attack on Fallujah. And it was there in the name of Zarqawi. And as I remember it, I'd have to go back here. But as I remember it, I don't even think he was there. Um, but it was just the legend that, oh, we're going after Zarqawi. And this is a major part of their propaganda in the war was the resistance are not local Iraqis who are just, you know, what we would call patriots if we were in their shoes, who are resisting foreign occupation. No, no, no. They're all terrorists. And they're all only resisting our benevolent attempt to give them freedom and democracy because of how loyal to bin Laden they all are. And so then blaming the entire insurgency on Zarqawi became a major part of that. And then that actually helped to bolster him and his forces. And he really became, after... And this is the crux of the thing that people throughout, you know, my babbling, this is the part they're supposed to take away. Zarqawi did not declare his loyalty to bin Laden until after the second battle of Fallujah in 2004, fully a year and a half into the war. He said, okay, fine. My militia is now called Al Qaeda in Mesopotamia. And then it was after that point that he really became and his militia became kind of the leaders of what they called the foreign fighters, just like in Afghanistan in the 80s when jihadists from all around the Middle East uh, and more had all gone to Afghanistan to fight. The same thing was happening here again in Western Iraq and Iraq War II. So you had Saudis. You know, our allies, the Saudis, our good friends, were sending fighters and financing them. 
to fight on the Sunni insurgency side. And along with a bunch of Libyans, which later blew back, of course, in the war of 2011, and a bunch of Syrians, which later blew back, of course, in the war of 2011 through right now, um, and all of this. And those guys became led by Zarqawi. And his group became the really the, I wouldn't say the dominant faction in the Sunni insurgency, but the worst part of it. They would deliberately target Shiite civilians in exactly the pattern of terrorism is to provoke an overreaction. And what they were trying to do was provoke Shiite militias into then mercilessly persecuting innocent Sunnis who had nothing to do with it. And then that would drive them into the arms of the insurgency and in reaction then make the insurgents more powerful. Now, of course, the Sunnis lost because they were way outnumbered by the Shiites plus the Americans. So this was a bad strategy on his part. But it it led to years of chaos I mean, just years of chaos. And they finally killed him in the summer of 2006. Um, and at that point, what had really happened was the local Iraqi Sunnis in the insurgency, the tribal leaders and former military leaders and so forth, they just got sick and tired of the jihadis antics. And they had just not really been a help at all, but had been counterproductive to their entire strategy. So they started killing them and getting rid of them. And that was what's now called the awakening movement, because General David Petraeus ran to get at the front of that parade and claim all the credit and say, see, I'm the one who convinced the Iraqi Sunnis to turn on al-Qaeda. So now we don't have to fight the Sunni insurgency anymore because we're going to make a deal with them to turn on the very worst part of their faction. But that was already happening from really, you know, about halfway through the end of 2005. And and certainly throughout the year 2006, um, they were the ones that was local Sunnis who had turned Zarqawi up, uh, you know, had given him up to the Americans in the first place um, in the summer of 06. It wasn't until January 07 that Petraeus came and got ahead of that parade and tried to claim credit for it all when he, in fact, never won anything in his life. Um, but so then once the local Sunnis and, and I should explain in context, this is a miracle. OK, W. Bush gave the entire western half of Iraq over to be Bin Laden University for, you know, thousands, literally thousands, maybe tens of thousands of, um, you know, militarist radicals, not necessarily all Islamists, but, uh, you know, certainly uh, young fighting age radical young males to go and fight and train and become hardened fighters. And some of them, you know, dedicated international terrorists. And then by the again the thousands and thousands and thousands and then their allies in the sunni insurgency decided to take care of that problem for us and the rest of humanity and just stab them all in the back and shoot them all and like thank god i mean most of them did not even make it home and a lot of them did turn around and flee then back as i said to libya and syria and elsewhere um but many of them died there and it was the local iraqi sunnis insurgents who took care of their own problem but for us and for everybody else. And that was just like, you know, if you believe in miracles or, or if you just, you know, you like to, to take note at certain little quirks of history, that sure was a nice little turn of events after you, would, you wouldn't have been able to predict that um, after the absolute horror show that Bush had unleashed there. But then fast forward a couple of years and Barack Obama breaks out the defibrillator paddles and shocks this Bin Ladenite movement right back to life again. And um, in, back in 06, after Zarqawi had been killed, 
they renamed the group the Islamic State of Iraq. And at that time, it was a joke because they had just gotten their asses completely handed to them by their own allies. There was probably a few hundred of them left at that time, and they had no power at all. They dominated maybe one neighborhood in Ramadi somewhere, but certainly not a single city in all of Iraq at that time. And yet at the same time, though, they were revealing what they had in mind, that if they could swing it, they meant to be the new monopoly on force around those parts and that that was their desire. So if you were the kind of person who was just an American critic or an American who just cares about the American people at large's national interest here, um, you could see you know, what a danger, what a latent danger this still was that Bush had created here. But if you're a Democrat or you're, you know, a John McCain Republican or anyone aligned with their factions in the Obama years, then they decided to just be blind to that danger, essentially, and say that, you know, we have decided we hate the Shiites more and we really regret that W. Bush gave them Baghdad. And so now we're going to take Damascus away from them. And so Bashar al-Assad, he's a Baathist, but rather than being a Sunni like Saddam Hussein, he's an Alawite, which is kind of a break off of the Shiites. It sort of predates them, but is highly associated with the Shiites um, and has an alliance with Iran. And now, once Bush invaded Iraq, the King of Jordan said, well, look, now we have the Shiite crescent. We already had an alliance between Tehran, Damascus and Hezbollah in southern Lebanon. Now W. Bush is adding Baghdad to Iran's side of the ledger. Nice word, neocons. These guys, they're as stupid as they are evil and cynical. And so they really had screwed up and had turned Iraq over to Iran's best friends, not our best friends. And they had told Bush, thanks for winning the war for us. Now get the hell out and kick America out. So now the Americans wanted essentially a consolation prize. If we gave Baghdad to Tehran... Well, at least we can take Damascus away from them. You can't reverse Iraq War II, but we'll move on to the next one. And so beginning in 2011, they started this massive covert operation that began, as we know, from the spring of 2011 on. They try to say, oh, well, Timber Sycamore started in 2013. Yeah, well, that may be true, but Timber Sycamore is not the beginning and end of everything. We know from Dick Cheney's man, John Hanna, in April of 2011, in foreign policy, was the first uh, major piece about this, said Prince Bandar bin Sultan, former ambassador to the United States, Bandar Bush, is now the head of intelligence in Saudi Arabia, and he's sending jihadists off to Syria to fight. Knew right from the very beginning. And the point of the article was funny. It was that we better do what he says and overthrow Assad, otherwise... He might do worse than get us into a war with Iran. So, in other words, America is a hostage of our Saudi allies. And we, if we don't wage a small, covert, pro-terrorist war for them in one country, they might force us to wage a full-scale war in another country by starting it and forcing us to finish it. Um, right. Yeah. So, yeah, go yeah. ahead. Well, let me just back up a little bit because sure. a article that you cite often – was by Seymour Hirsch in The New Yorker called The Redirection. It was in 2007. And the 
the basis of the piece or the basic art, uh, uh, claim is that the Bush administration was overseeing, as you're talking about, this redirection where the U.S. was going to start supporting uh, Sunni extremists in a bid to weaken Iran and its allies. And there's a quote in there from a U.S. government consultant who says this to her. She says, Bandar and other Saudis have assured the White House that they will keep a very close eye on the religious fundamentalists. Their message to us was, we've created this movement and we can control it. It's not that we don't want the Salafis to throw bombs. It's who they throw them at. Hezbollah, Maqtada al-Sadr, Iran, and at the Syrians, if they continue to work with Hezbollah and Iran. So that was already previewed back in 2007, that that's what the strategy that's right. would be. And, and now think ask- about what you're saying there. It's treason. It's as simple as that. Now, look, I mean, we're talking about – they are talking about backing the bin Ladenites as mm-hmm. though September 11th had never happened. As though yes. this is still just Bill Clinton screwing around in Chechnya or in Bosnia, yeah. but they – and in fact, they uh, – uh, uh, when uh, – um, uh, uh, pardon me. I distracted me. I lost my train of thought. Uh, uh, Clinton, they had already been bombing us since 93. I mean they blew up the World Trade Center in, in 1993. Clinton was backing them anyway, but forget that. Post-September 11th. Post Iraq War II, where again the Bin Ladenites are the worst part of the Sunni insurgency, and Bush says, "Okay, well, whatever. We're just going to act like." And, and importantly, this is not when Obama came, and Obama's a secret Muslim from Kenya. This is still during Bush that Zalmay Khalilzad and Elliot Abrams and others of the neoconservatives convinced Bush that, frankly, sir, we screwed the pooch here, and now we have to, as they put it, redirect. And that means back toward the Saudis. But what does that mean? That means back towards Al-Qaeda. The Saudis yeah. don't have a land army and an air force. They've got suicide bombers. And so W. Bush decided, as according to Hirsch, and this is people should read his whole series from 2007 here. It's the coming wars and preparing the battlefield, the redirection and a couple of others where he goes into USA backing Fatah al-Islam in Lebanon against Hezbollah. Backing the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria, which Liz Cheney was a part of this, setting up the original Syrian uh, Democratic Council alternative government to Assad there when she worked in the State Department under Bush. Um, and they started backing PJAC, which is the the um, Iranian faction of the Kurdish PKK in Turkey. And as you know them, the YPG in Syria um, and also Jandala, which is a extremely dangerous bin Ladenite group of head chopper, suicide bomber maniacs who committed attacks against um, high level military officers in Iran and even attempted to assassinate Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. And so this is all just straight treason, you know, in the in the constitutional definition. And to be perfectly clear, as Obama would say, this is not because Bush and Obama are loyal to the goals of bin Laden. It's because they're loyal to the goals of the Saudi king. And that's enough, (laughs) essentially, that they hate the Ayatollah in Iran more than they hate bin Laden and Zawahiri. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let me try to bring it to the present moment with this raid that just happened in Idlib and ask you to talk about how ISIS goes from Syria, from Iraq into Syria. And let me ask you to start with Camp Bukha, where so many 
senior ISIS leaders, including the ISIS leader who was just killed, al-Qurashi, they were imprisoned. And what's interesting is, and, and the Washington Post has recently reported on this, al-Qurashi was not just in a U.S. prison inside Iraq with, with people who went on to occupy senior roles in ISIS, including, by the way, al-Julani, who is now the head of al-Qaeda uh, in Syria, which controls Idlib, the province where, where al-Qurashi, the ISIS leader, was killed. But al-Qurashi was not only there in the prison, but he was actually a key U.S. informant uh, while serving there, where he basically snitched on other members, rival members of his group who he wanted to take out. And then at a certain point in, 2000, in 2009, he gets released along with thousands of other prisoners. And not long after that, you have the spread of al-Qaeda and ISIS to Syria. So I'm wondering if you could just talk about that, the trajectory from ISIS grow, uh, you know, uh, spreading in Iraq and how they got from Iraq to Syria. Well, I mean, I got to say, you're raising a very important question there. And I really don't know if there's anyone who has said that there was a, you know, a deliberate causal kind of a thing there that we need to let these guys go now because we're going to need them soon. Or if that is just, you know, that's my, I'm speculating, I'm speculating, I'm speculating that if the war in dirty war in Syria was pre-planned for the length of time that we think it was, yes. that it really predates 2011, then, and this is a point raised actually by an article that was up on the Libertarian Institute by, um, by your, by William uh, Van, Van Wagenen. Yeah, Van Wagenen, that where he points out that the release of all these Salafi prisoners in 2009, that if there was a plan to launch a dirty war in Syria, that this might've been a part of that. I mean, I, I got sure. that from him. And, and, I'm and not look, I think that's a it, totally just, fair point to raise. Sure. Yeah. 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 Uh, but but if you just take it as the more Occam's razor type of thing, that here they had fought this war, they had radicalized this insurgency, they created this battle space for jihadists from all over the region to come and fight, and then yeah. they had rounded them all up and locked them all up in cages together where they could all be disciplined under the authority of a few religious leaders. Um, and they're very, you know, top down in their authority, right? You might be, it's like the Italian mob or whatever, you know, you, when, when the leader says hush, they hush. And so, um, you know, this is just at the very best interpretation, a horrible self-inflicted wound from American policy here. And I would also point out that John Schwartz, uh, at the intercept had traced Baghdadi's serial number as an American prisoner and found that he had also been in prison, not just at Camp Buka, but also at Abu Ghraib. And during the time of the worst of the abuses there in 2003 and four. So there's every reason to believe that Baghdadi was mistreated in exactly the fashion as depicted in those videos, which is not the worst of it. As we know, they kept classified the very worst of it because in their words, they were afraid it would spur terrorism. Because it's not freedom that they hate. It's the brutal violence that America inflicts on them that they're uh, fighting back against. And I like pointing this out because it is really important that Zarqawi, too, was tortured. Zarqawi was a two-bit rapist, loser, nobody, until he went to prison in Jordan and was tortured. And then he found God and he went to Afghanistan to go and fight and became a disciplined warrior and a leader of other men and responsible then eventually for the deaths of thousands of innocent civilians. Um, and the same is true for Ayman al-Zawahiri himself, the current leader of al-Qaeda, hiding out wherever he is in the Four Seasons in Washington or 
in Riyadh. Um, but uh, Zawahiri was the um, was a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, who my understanding is was not directly involved in the assassination of Anwar Sadat, the dictator of Egypt in 1981, but he was rounded up and tortured with the rest of them. At that time, he was a heart surgeon in Cairo, had Hmm. a medical career ahead of him for the rest of his life. But once they tortured him, they made an enemy out of him. And he broke with the Muslim Brotherhood because he said that they were a bunch of, you know, weak, tired, selfish old men. And he went ahead and joined up with Islamic Jihad. And the rest is history. You know, Um, so when when America and our sock puppet governments torture people, they oftentimes create some of, in fact, in this case, in these three cases, the worst terrorists of our era or direct blowback from torture. Um, And then, as you say, you know, so these guys are all grouped together. Now, whether they were deliberately let out to be the core of the new uh, jihadist wave or not, I don't know. But even without that level of cynicism involved, which is perfectly possible you still have essentially America had to let them go at some point or whatever. They're going to, I guess they could have just turned them over to the Shiites there. They probably didn't have anything on most of these guys. The army had admitted themselves that at one point uh, they confirmed the red crosses accusation that 90% of the people that they had arrested were simply Sunni fighting age males from the wrong neighborhood who were all just rounded up uh, right. under their, you know, bogus counterinsurgency theories and all this. It was a, uh, General Ray Odierno, who had brought the worst of that policy to the Anbar province. And so, you you know, take a bunch of nobodies and brutalize them and then lock them up with a bunch of bin Ladenites. And then guess what you got? A new jihadi army. Um, And then, as I know that you know, and you're very familiar, and again, we can all look to the great Seymour Hirsch in the New Yorker magazine, that um, uh, in his great piece, The Red Line and the Rat Line, that at their first opportunity, after the fall of Gaddafi's regime, they took all the weapons and all the uh, jihadists and they put them on ships off to go fight in Syria. That's right. And there's, there's, a, actually, there's, a, yeah, there's a Pentagon document that says that these shipments started as early as October 2011, which is much earlier than the CIA has admitted to starting its Timber Sycamore program. Right. And in fact, there's a great clip of Rand Paul accusing Hillary Clinton of this. And Hillary Clinton says, geez, I just can't confirm that. I don't know what you're talking about. I recommend you ask another agency about that, Senator, or something like that, which is just (laughs) to tell that, like, yes. And we know, again, who was it? It was General David Petraeus, who was then the leader of the CIA, the head of the CIA, the guy who had lost the Iraq War and the Afghan War, and then had moved to CIA, and now was in charge of rounding up a bunch of terrorists and weapons and shipping them off to fight the next dirty war in Syria. And he was later out, uh, uh, very soon after that, was ousted because he had given above top secret intelligence, direct transcripts of conversations between him and the president about the war and about the highest level matters, had given that all to his mistress and hagiographer. And, and was finally disgraced. Losing two wars and committing high treason, that's one thing. But leaking secrets about Obama to his mistress was a bridge too far, finally, for the government, and they forced him out. And in fact, I know a guy who uh, was a former CIA officer who said that what he had heard was the CIA hated Petraeus, and they turned him over to the FBI, basically, and ratted him out to the FBI to get him <laughs> out of there. Um, but anyway, so then... Um, Again, from the very beginning, from from at least April, 
of 2011 when John Hanna wrote his piece in Foreign Policy. We knew that regardless of whatever you're hearing on TV about peaceful protesters who are mad that they live under an hereditary dictatorship, that that's all moot. That point is moot. It may be true, but it doesn't matter because what matters is the Saudis are sending bin Ladenite jihadist terrorists off to fight in the war. And then these same men, and there's a great article about this called The Jihadist Next Door in Politico magazine, and I interviewed the author of it, and she did, I think that's the best telling I ever read of how Al-Qaeda in Iraq said, all right, boys, now's our chance. Saddle up and cross the line straight into Syria to go pick up the mantle and fight the war. And it was Baghdadi sent Jolani, who you already mentioned, Mohammed al-Jolani, um, to go and lead Al-Qaeda in Iraq in Syria. And they named it Jabhat al-Nusra, which is something like the Association of Helpers or Assistants or something like that. And it was Al-Qaeda in Iraq and Syria. That's all it was. It was Zarqawi's brigades uh, brought back to life by Barack Obama. And so, you know, there were leftist militias that rose up against Assad. There were people who wanted real democracy and secularism who rose up against Assad very briefly at the very beginning. But it was so so soon. I mean, by the summer of 2011, at least, if you really want to fist fight me about it, I'll say fine. By the end of 2011 and January of 2012, we knew, 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 knew that the jihadists weren't just there, that they were dominant, that this is their war. And there were enough other factions to kind of obscure that for a while. Lord knows the West called anybody but Al-Qaeda the free Syrian army of secular, moderate, democratic rebels the whole time. But it just wasn't true. Al-Nusra was the dominant force on the battlefield in alliance with Arar al-Sham, which was also founded by original bin Ladenites from the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, This guy al-Suri had been, you know, a close partner of bin Laden in the past. They were the men who created all of these groups that dominated the insurgency. And um, in... Uh, February of 2012, Hillary Clinton gave an interview to ABC News. She was still Secretary of State for one more year. And uh, everybody can find this, CBS News, Hillary Clinton, Al-Nusra, February 2012. It'll come up there. And the guy's name is Wyatt, who's interviewing her. And he's asking her, Hillary Clinton, why aren't we doing more to overthrow Assad? And she says, well, uh, and now look, she was a hawk. I'll stipulate better in a second. But she was to the right of Obama on this, if you call it that. She was more hawkish than Obama on this. But in this situation, she's the secretary of state and she's being forced to defend Obama's somewhat reluctance to completely commit to this thing. Right. Uh, Which is true. And so she says, well, listen, I'm in al-Zawahiri has endorsed the revolution in Syria. Are we supporting Al-Qaeda in Syria? Hamas (laughs) supports the revolution. Are we supporting Hamas? And now, let's be very charitable here, okay? Because you don't have to be mean. You can be nice and say, she's not saying, are we directly putting hands in uh, uh, arms in the hands of jihadists although yes we were but that's not really what she was saying but she was essentially saying if you wanted to make an analogy can we support georgia in the civil war without also supporting south carolina because they're on the same side of the war right that's what she's saying 
if we're yeah. supporting one side of the war here, aren't we supporting the other two? And, you know, the, the, the same groups on the same side as them. That's what she's saying. And then she says, and, and get this, this is two days or three days, Aaron, after the first big Friends of Syria meeting, where she's meeting with the Syrian National Council that Liz Cheney had set up to be, which included the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, had set up to be the replacement government in Syria. And Hillary had just met with them, and she tells Wyatt of CBS News, whatever his last name is, that look, Wyatt, I just met with these guys, and I have to tell you, when we look for a credible opposition that could, you know, accept the mantle of responsibility for creating a new state in Syria, we just don't see that. And so it's a very difficult position that we're in here that, of course, geez, we want to help the poor, poor people who are being attacked mercilessly by their government for no reason at all. Not that we've been back in jihadists against them for the last year or anything, but there's only so much you can do in a situation like this. And that's basically the position we're in. So that's from the very beginning of 2012 that she said that on the record, that they knew that essentially that was the side of the war they were on. And I know you know this and your audience should definitely know it because it's so much fun. If for no other reason than that, that she was very obviously referring to an email that she had received from her chief of staff, Jake Sullivan, or I'm sorry, whatever his position was, he was her right-hand man at state, um, that he had sent her just two weeks before where he wrote, 10 years ago this month, Scott, 10 years ago this month. That's right. Look, boss, AQ is on our side in Syria. And appended to it was a Reuters report about Ayman al-Zawahiri saying, now is our chance. Everyone rise up and overthrow these evil Shiite heretic pig dogs. And so what? So she thought of that in, in a pinch, basically, right? This, this, uh, Walsh, uh, this uh, CBS reporter is putting it to her. She's got to come up with a good excuse why to not do the thing that she actually wants to do. And she goes, well, I mean, we would be backing our most deadly enemies, <laughs> you know. And, and then she spent the rest of the year pushing for exactly that policy. And then the moment she was out of power at the beginning of 2013, she put an article in the New York Times saying, well, me and Leon Panetta and David Petraeus wanted to do the right thing and Quinn tumbled down on the side of the moderate rebels and get this thing done. But Obama dithered and dallied and refused to do it. And so now look at what a bad position we're in. And that was her last statement on the issue as she was leaving power. Then when she ran for president in 2016, of course, she was calling for a no-fly zone. Where? Over the Idlib province, where the moderate rebels are staked out, which is, of course, the same place where this raid against the leader of ISIS took place the other day, Aaron. Yep, yep. Yeah, um, and because yeah. this is after Assad, um, I'm sorry, I got to do this uh, quicker, but um, in so this policy lasted for a couple of years. I mean, it, it actually continued all the way through um, uh, Donald Trump canceling it in June of 2017. Yeah. Um, a, a move which the Washington Post announced as treason because it was a move sought by Moscow, they said. Uh, it's treason for Trump to stop supporting al-Qaeda in Syria. All right, guys. Um, but so after a couple of years of this, Aaron, in the spring of 2013, ISIS broke away from the authority of Zawahiri hiding out in Pakistan and essentially 
ISIS, again, was just the Islamic State of Iraq. They'd added in Syria or in the Levant or whatever. I don't speak Arabic, but essentially, uh, you know, claiming, oh, yeah, also Syria, too. Right. And um, so, you know, part of Al-Qaeda doctrine is to attack the far enemy, the Americans, because they can never succeed in their local revolutions as long as the American superpower is there to back up the monarchs and the El Presidentes and dictators and sultans against them. So they've got to lure us in, bog us down, lead us to bankruptcy like they did the Soviet Union, force us out the long way and the hard way. And only then, after winning the long, long game, will they be able to finally create their caliphate, right? Well, Baghdadi said, screw all that. I want to create my state now. And Zawahiri said, yeah, but that's not the doctrine. And Baghdadi said, yeah, but I don't care what you say. What are you going to do about it? You're hiding in a basement in Pakistan somewhere, supposedly. And so you made your law. Let's see you enforce it, right? And so he went ahead and declared a state in eastern Syria. And this was also a fight over oil resources and a split with Jolani. Now, Jolani was a Syrian. So essentially you had a Syrian-dominated faction of al-Qaeda in Iraq in Syria and an Iraqi-dominated faction of al-Qaeda in Iraq in Syria. And the Iraqi-dominated faction decided to split and create their state. Now, six months after that, Aaron, they raised the black flag over a building in Fallujah. And uh, Obama was asked about this. And Obama said, well, listen, just because the JV team puts on a Kobe Bryant jersey doesn't make them the star, the player, or whatever. Something very close to that. So... ISIS, because they're not Al-Qaeda, they're ISIS, this breakoff group, that makes them the junior varsity team. Except that it's Al-Qaeda in Iraq is what we're talking about. It's Arkawi's group that yeah. killed at least hundreds, maybe, Aaron, maybe more than a thousand or maybe even more than 2,000 of the 4,500 guys we lost in Iraq War II. Died fighting this guy and his group, Al-Qaeda yeah. in Iraq. They're the junior varsity now, Obama says. And six months after that, they rolled from Syria right into Western Iraq and conquered virtually all of it. They got uh, Mosul and Tikrit and Baiji and uh, I think Samara and eventually Ramadi. They rolled right into Fallujah and they rolled right up to the gates of Baghdad and uh, the river essentially demarcating the border with Iraqi Kurdistan. And created a caliphate, as they called it. Baghdadi declared himself the Caliph Ibrahim, divinely appointed supreme caliph, like, you know, recalling back in history of the, the sultans of the old caliphates, and, um, and, you know, seized an area essentially the size of Great Britain, and then launched a war against all of their neighbors, <laughs> you know. Um, and so this then was such a huge and embarrassing catastrophe. Here, America had built up these forces to spite the Shiites, mm -hmm. but rolling all the way in and conquering all of Western Iraq, although I'm sure the Americans were kind of quietly gleeful and happy to see the, their allies, the Shiites, they put in power in Baghdad under pressure. Essentially, this is also a huge embarrassment and a catastrophe of, you know, epic proportions from a public relations standpoint that all of Western Iraq has fallen to these guys. And we can't, it's, it's hard to call them moderate rebels like in Syria when we all know the history of Iraq War II here. So then they had to launch Iraq War III, where they again took the side of Iran's best friends among the Shiites, 
in power in Baghdad in order to force to destroy the Islamic State Caliphate uh, beginning in August 2014 and including, you know, just an absolute blitz against Fallujah and Ramadi and Mosul and tens of thousands, maybe more than 100,000 or even more than that, innocent civilians were killed in the crossfire of the thing. And including, when I say Iraq War Three, I include the war in far eastern Syria against Raqqa as well, which was the twin capital city, essentially, of the Islamic State Caliphate there. And, of course, they allied with the Kurds in uh, far northeastern Syria. After getting them into this mess, they allied with the Kurds and used them as their auxiliaries, because the Shiites are still the bad guys on the Syrian side of the line, remember? So we can't ally with them. So instead, they allied with just the uh, YPG Kurds uh, to fight against ISIS there. And But they also let ISIS spread throughout Syria. And that's what I wanted to ask you about. There's this amazing admission from John Kerry, which I, mm-hmm. I play often in my interviews, but I'm going to play it now because he really explains it all, where basically Kerry admits he's speaking to some Syrian opposition activists in 2016 doesn't realize he's being recorded. And he admits what the U.S. strategy was. He says the U.S. sat back and watched as ISIS spread throughout Syria. And that's why Russia came in, because ISIS was threatening to uh, take Damascus. Uh, and, that, let me Before you play that clip, let me just stipulate yeah. here, too, that, you know, when, as I say, Iraq War Three against the Islamic State started in the summer of 2014, that this whole caliphate business is way a bridge too far for this policy on the Iraqi side of the line there. But Obama continued to back al-Qaeda, the al-Nusra Front, and Arar al-Sham, and all of their allies on the Syrian side of the line. He was backing the Kurds against ISIS, but he wasn't backing them against the rest of the CIA's jihadists. Again, that operation wasn't called off until Trump called it off in the summer of 17. So you had insane circumstances where we're in the middle of essentially a full scale air campaign against the Islamic State on the Iraqi side of the line. And we're holding our fire as ISIS rolls right into the city of Palmyra and seizes it in Iraq and in Syria. And then they say at the time, too, that, well, if we had bombed the ISIS convoy on their way to Palmyra, that would have freed up Syrian forces to resist our efforts to back Arar al-Sham and, Al- and Al-Qaeda against them in the Idlib province going on at the same time. And so they were still up to their eyeballs in this treason through the rest of the Obama era. Um, it, despite what John Kerry says in the clip you're going to play, the only side <laughs> they had switched was they were bombing ISIS. But everybody else was still Ali Ali oxen free to go ahead. Well, let's hear let's hear John Kerry explain it how they let ISIS grow. And what he says is that basically the strategy was to let ISIS threaten Assad sufficiently enough so that Assad feels sufficiently threatened to negotiate his way out of power so the US can install someone uh, else to lead Syria. This is what Kerry said. The reason Russia came in is because ISIS was getting stronger. Gash was threatening the possibility of going to Damascus and so forth. And that's why Russia came in, because they didn't want a Daesh government. And they supported Assad. And and, uh, and we know that this was growing. We were watching. We saw that, that Daesh was growing in strength. And we thought Assad was right. Uh, we thought our probably manage, uh, you know, that 
outside might then negotiate. Instead of negotiating, you got outside. Now you got uh, Putin said, support him. The reason Russia came in. It's just an extraordinary statement, and it captures yep. the, the cynicism of U.S. policy that they were willing and the to idiocy, let, the yeah. outright idiocy. And look, I, I make the point in the book. I say, imagine if in the Civil War, the British and the French were intervening on the side of the South, and then someone in Britain said, "Yeah, because what we're going to do is by intervening on the side of the South, that's going to pressure Abraham Lincoln to resign." And let us appoint his replacement. Huh? That's completely stupid and ridiculous. You know yeah. what would be more likely would be Abraham Lincoln would go to the Russians and ask them for help. And guess what, Aaron? That's exactly what happened in the American Civil War. When the British and the French were tilting toward the south, Abraham Lincoln made a deal with the Tsar, who sailed his warships into New York and San Francisco harbors as a warning to the southern navies to stay out and as a threat to the British and the French, that if they got involved, then Russia was going to get involved on the North's side, is exactly what Abraham Lincoln did in that situation, rather than resigning and letting the British appoint his replacement, a hearty har har har. And so the idea that John Kerry and his people thought, they stood in a room in Barack Obama's Oval Office, in the National Security Council situation room or whatever. And they said, yeah, this is what we're going to do. We're going to back a bunch of bin Ladenite terrorists against the secular Baathist government that's protecting the Shiites and the Druze and the 10 kinds of Christians and all these different things. And that's going to pressure the leadership of that government to quit and let us appoint someone else to replace him. And then who did they have to replace him? Quote Hillary Clinton. (laughs) We don't see that. A group of people to replace him with. Yeah. And so why would Assad possibly give in? And look, this is the same reason why Barack Obama did not carpet bomb the Syrian Arab army, which he could have done on any day. I mean, the military, the U.S. Pentagon announced they were prepared to invade uh, Syria in 2012. We're ready to go to finish this regime change through. And Barack Obama was like, man, I don't think so. I'll back these terrorists, but I won't back them to the point that they actually win. Because well, he was rightfully yeah. scared to death of that. Yeah, and that's a good segue actually into the other you know, ongoing crisis, which is Ukraine, where there's a major parallel where just as – so Obama oversaw this disastrous regime change policy. I mean he did sign the finding authorizing Timber Sycamore, the multi-billion dollar CIA dirty war operation in Syria. But as you say also, he didn't back the maximus – the maximalist proposals to go full on regime change war, like essentially act as ISIS's air force in Syria. Now in Ukraine, the similar thing too. He he oversaw the Maidan coup. They the U.S. pressured Ukraine to basically cut off all ties to Russia to choose between Russia or the West. That led to this coup that ousted Yanukovych. Then you have the outbreak of war in the Donbas. Russia takes Crimea because they don't want to see the uh, NATO take over their main uh, uh, port, um, uh, military port. But Obama still resists calls from his advisors, his top aides, to uh, send even more weapons to Ukraine and basically arm neo-Nazis. He doesn't want to further inflame this proxy war that he started. And now we're seeing the consequences of that, where this is, you know, escalated into this crisis we're seeing now. And I'm just wondering your take on what's happening the U.S. is claiming that 
a Russian invasion is likely or it's imminent. They've kind of walked back the imminent claim, but they're having a hard time getting everybody else to go along, including their allies in Kiev. Right. Um, well, listen, for people who want to know what's going on here, number one most important thing to do is to read Jason Ditz and Dave DeCamp every day at news.antiwar.com. Those two guys are the best, and they're on every facet of this all day, every day, without fail for you at antiwar.com there. So um, one of the things that Dave pointed out to me was that when the Washington Post debuted this story and the American officials debuted this story at the 1st of November last year, that the Ukrainian government's reaction was, what the hell are you guys talking about? And then the Americans gave them like the hard elbow and said, we're talking about the imminent invasion. And then the Ukrainians went, oh, right, that Ukrainian, that imminent invasion that we're all worried about. Can I have some more weapons, please? Okay, good. Um, And so, you know, they've had trouble getting on board for this all along. And then, of course, it was a big controversy last week that um, Zelensky was essentially the, the president of Ukraine was talking back out of line and out of turn, saying he wished the Americans would pipe down because they're panicking everyone and it's really hurting the Ukrainian economy and all these things, and that, listen, yes, there's some sort of buildup there, but we don't believe there's going to be an invasion, which is the truth. In fact, I think it was the day before that or two days before that, I interviewed Gilbert Doctorow, who is this great Russia analyst who lives in Brussels and consumes Russian media all the time. And we, we began the interview with him telling me, Russian stock market is up today. In other words, there's not going to be a war. This whole thing is cooked up by the CIA and the Washington Post and, I don't know, maybe Hill and Knowlton, the babies and incubators, PR firms, somebody like that. Um, This is not what's going on here, really. What's going on is, um, as Jason – no, pardon me, as Dave wrote, uh, Dave DeCamp at news.antiwar.com, the uh, Biden administration has increased the American naval presence in the Black Sea by 120 percent over Trump. And Trump was a Russia hawk. He had, or either that or he had no control over his Pentagon whatsoever. You choose. But the latter. His, yeah, well, so the Navy and the Air Force are constantly testing the Russians, sailing warships into the Black Sea and Baltic Sea and the Sea of Ashtok there north of Japan in the Far East and flying nuclear bombers right up to 12 and a half, 13 miles off of their coast to force them to light up all their radars and defenses and all of these things, extremely provocative. I mean, imagine if the Russians were flying their nuclear bombers off the coast of Florida and California constantly, and they wouldn't stop it. And, they, and they're, oh, very cutely at 12 and a half miles off the, off the line where it's within the rules, but, you know, absolutely objectionable. And, it, and they kept it up for years and years on end. Well, Biden has stepped all that up 120% over how it was under Trump's last year, I guess is how they were averaging it. Um, and so this is why the Russians started building up on the other side of the border. Oh, and they were also sending uh, much more weapons. As you said, Obama was afraid to arm the Nazi-infested military that um, you know came to power after his Nazi-infested street putsch in February of 2014. But uh, he did send trainers. And then once Trump got in there, he armed them. And yep. uh, in fact, I may have learned this from you uh, now that I think about it. There's at least one quote of Trump Jr., I believe it was, saying, well, look at all the weapons we're giving to Ukraine. You can't call us Russian puppets now. In other words, it worked perfectly, right? Just like the FBI told CNN that, well, if we can't overthrow him through the 25th Amendment, that at least we can hem him in 
from having a good Russia policy and make him a hawk on Russia by accusing him of treason with Russia. And that kind of two-dimensional thinking, of course, works perfect on a mind like Trump and his son and his family that, well, we better double down for Ukraine <laughs> to prove what patriots we are. You know? I only wonder I only wonder if Trump Jr. He might have said that about when Trump bombed Syria, another success for the intelligence community by calling Trump a Russian puppet is encouraging Trump to abandon his plans to, uh, you know, scale back military intervention in Syria. And when he bombed Syria in April 2017, after the alleged chemical attack in Khan Sheikhoun, that might have been when one of the Trump kids said, well, you see, this proves right. he isn't a Russian puppet. Thank you for that correction. I think you're right about that. You must be right about that. Thank you for that. You're right. It's one of those uh, two. I same mean, damn difference. It's the same yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no. But important clarification there. Um, but so and they did send weapons. And then famously, I, I just love this because like if anybody was on vacation that year somehow or was just playing video games and not watching the news or something, you might not believe me if I told you. That I swear to God, I'm not making this up, but this is really true, that for the third time in American history, an American president was impeached. And in this case, it was because he was temporarily holding up an arms deal to Ukraine. And, and he was doing so because he was trying to influence them to reopen a criminal investigation into some very criminal activity that the previous government had obstructed justice to try to intervene and close down. And so all Donald Trump was trying to do was unobstruct justice by temporarily withholding an arms deal, which the Ukrainians, it turned out, didn't even realize was being temporarily withheld exactly. because it was uh, released uh, you know, soon enough anyway. And they, I swear to God, they literally impeached the president of the United States for that. Um, and, and, then the, and the guys who were the rats who turned him in, one of them was a Ukrainian national, and both of them were put on the Security <laughs> Council by John Brennan. So, yes. what the yeah. hell? I don't know, yeah. man. You yeah. write the novel. I'll just read it. Vindman, um, uh, Alexander Vindman, he was offered, he, or he was in talks to become the defense minister of Ukraine. Right? Oh that, was a, that was it. Yeah. And and which he, may and, happen yet. You know? Yeah, that's true. He's he's probably still in the running. And amazingly, he said that a part of his objections to what Trump did was that what in Trump in freezing the weapons sales that that Benjamin said that that goes against our national foreign policy objectives. Right. For some reason, forgetting that it's the president who sets the foreign policy objectives, not bureaucrats. Absolutely not, right. Not not bureaucrats appointed by John Brennan. I mean, and in fact. This is I didn't watch that whole thing, but this was the part that I just happened to tune into, I guess, was uh, him telling the Congress. I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, but not by much that. Listen, the interagency has decided what our foreign policy is. Yes. And yes. who the yes. hell does this president <laughs> guy think he is that he's going to go against our, as you just put it, our foreign policy objectives. Yeah. But man, you're a lieutenant colonel. Was he a full, was he a full colonel? No, you're, he was, he was lieutenant yeah, you're a colonel. lieutenant colonel on the NSC. Yeah. You're nothing. Are you kidding yeah. me? And then what is this interagency anyway? Does that just mean a, a committee meeting, uh, you know, like the deputies committee of the National Security Council, where the undersecretaries from the different agencies meet and try to come to consensus on things. And then just absolutely, as you put it in his concession, he, he couldn't understand. He was being on. He couldn't believe that this Trump guy thought that he was going to tell them what to do and, and especially reverse what they had decided was obviously what America wanted to do was 
pick a fight with Russia at any cost over Ukraine. And, and that's the, I, and that's the same guiding else. that's the same guiding light in Syria too, where I think part of the animus towards Russia right now, the bipartisan animus, is that um, is not just over Ukraine, but also that Russia, as Kerry talked about, Russia intervened thereby foiling U.S. regime change plans because at that point, the U.S. and Kerry's words was using ISIS as a tool to push through regime change in Damascus. And Russia came in to stop that because, as Kerry said, they didn't want an ISIS government. Imagine that, not, not wanting to see an ISIS government in Damascus. And so that has led to this incredible hostility towards Russia in Washington, where Russia basically pushed back not only in Ukraine, but also in Syria. And I think that's what helps explain so much of these crises that we have mm-hmm. that we have today. And um, when you look at the U.S. media, there is just no awareness of it whatsoever. And taking it back to Syria, I mean, again, the reason why Al-Qaeda controls Idlib, where this ISIS leader was killed, and for all the talk, by the way, of of a conflict between Al-Qaeda and ISIS in Syria, and that's why we're supposed to believe that Al-Qaeda has rebranded and changed, it just so happens that the last two ISIS leaders that have been killed by the U.S. Uh, have <laughs> happened to be living in Idlib under right. Al-Qaeda protection. And the reason exactly. uh, the reason Al-Qaeda has Idlib is because they got weapons that were given to the quote-unquote moderate rebels, like like tow missiles, anti-tank uh, missiles, and used them to capture Idlib. They were, they, they, Al-Qaeda could not have captured Idlib, which they hold right now, if not for U.S. weapons. And it's right. just, that's the context that gets missing from the media coverage of all this stuff. Yeah, and and look, it's only because America has taken the side of Turkey and, you know, forced this deal. I don't know how they got Assad and Russia to agree to this side, to their side of the deal. Maybe it's just because they don't know what the hell to do with all these people either. So they're kind of essentially under Turkish protection in the Idlib province now. And, um, you know, for all the talk of the genocide in... um, Western China. I mean, what's far more worrisome to me is, I mean, there are no killing fields there. I mean, the days of Mao and Pol Pot and all that stuff, that's not going on there right now. What's what's happening, or, or at least what's to me more of a concern than, you know, mass imprisonment. There is kind of a culture war going on there, but it's far from a genocide. Um, but I'm more worried about the CIA using Uyghurs. I mean, there were, according to Hirsch's reporting, for example, and this is confirmed by, I think, Lawrence Wilkerson and others, that there were tens of thousands, I think 20,000 or something Uyghurs who had gone to Syria to fight on the side of Al-Qaeda and ISIS. And they even had their own little town that they had taken over in the Idlib province for a while. That's right. And then supposedly like under Turkish, you know, under the, the, the Turkish rat line, they've been funneled back east and, and, um, are being held. I'm trying to remember. I think it was, uh, Lawrence Wilkerson who told me, um, that, uh, they were being held, I think, in uh, Kazakhstan for, you know, possible use against China in the future. And then so that mm. raised the question whether whether those guys had anything to do with what was going on there recently. I don't know. Um, mm. I, I may have that wrong, whether it was Kazakhstan or not. But anyway, there's a, a real question about whether America is going to go back to supporting the Uyghurs against China. You know, I don't know if you know this one, Aaron, but. Um, I'm friends with this great Canadian. Well, no, he's an American. He lives in Canada now, but he's an American reporter. Uh, Eric Margulies, who wrote War at the Top of the World and American Raj, um, who's just brilliant. And um, he was in Afghanistan in the summer of 01, where he saw 
essentially Pakistani backed, but with an American wink and a nudge and approval, uh, Pakistani backed uh, training camps for Uyghurs in Afghanistan. This is in, you know, while, while the Taliban is harboring Al-Qaeda there and they're preparing the September 11th attack against us, not the Taliban, but Al-Qaeda, um, the Americans uh, have this wink-nudge relationship with the Taliban and the Pakistanis to train these Uyghurs for possible use against China. And we saw them used in the Syrian war. Now the question is, what's next for them, too? Well, one one hint was provided by Mike Pompeo on his way out the door in the last months of the Trump administration. What did he do? He took the East Turkestan Islamic movement off of the U.S. terror list. Right. Uh, And it's obvious what the aim is there. It's to use them to uh to to i'd use them against china as the u.s always does it finds a you know far-right militia group it can use to weaken its official enemies and it's obvious and that's why by the way michael pan was the driving force behind claims that china is committing a genocide in xinjiang for which there's no evidence there is evidence of mass surveillance and of these uh and of a crackdown of some kind but what gets missing from from the coverage is again that, that China has been dealing with a extremist problem. These these groups like the ETIM have carried out terrorist attacks that have killed many people inside China, and so this is China's response to that. To me, China's response is not compared to the U.S. response to terrorism, which is to launch a global war on terror and kidnap people and put them in torture sites and invade and occupy countries. So, um, and the focus on what China allegedly does and these. Dumb accusations of genocide to me just serve as a not only a cover for what the U.S. is trying to do to destabilize China, but also a distraction for what the U.S. does around the world. Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, I don't think that amounts to an apology for what China is. You know, I'm I'm sure that their crackdowns against the Islamic movement there in Xinjiang goes beyond the guilty individuals to a broader counterinsurgency type campaign where they you know, not necessarily with rifles, but still, you know, um, have kind of this sort of broad re-education campaign going on to some degree. And massive massive surveillance. There's no doubt there's also massive surveillance. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, look, it's not a free country or anything like that. But the question is, um, you know, compared to the accusations, what's really going on there? Um, and, And to go back to, you know, kind of the broader theme here about the terror war and all of this. I mean, look at the ironic sides that line up in the war in Syria where, you know, me and Jason Ditz from Antiwar.com, we used to joke in 2011 and 12 and 13 that, or, or, well, especially even in 2011, when we still had troops there for the rest of the year through the end of the official Iraq War II, you know? Um, and we would joke about how we're still using drones to chase the, to kill Al-Qaeda guys there. And the way we joked about it was to chase them across the border into Syria where they become heroic, moderate rebels where we love them and support them. <laughs> Right. So then even after, well, we'll get to that in a second. So, so then during the war, America is lining up with the, obviously Al Qaeda in Iraq and their allies there. But then what happens is the Iraqi Shiites, uh, especially the Bada Brigade who America fought an eight year war to ensconce in power and David Petraeus himself built into the Iraqi army. They come to fight on the side of Assad and Iran and Hezbollah against America and Al-Qaeda, right? Mm -hmm. But then when ISIS gets too big and rolls across the border into Iraq, those Iraqi Shiite militias got to go home to fight the war there. So then guess what? 
the Iranians turned to America's Shiite allies in Afghanistan, the Hazaras, to come and fight on the side of Iran and Hezbollah and Assad on the ground in uh, Syria. And the jihadist side responds by going and recruiting the Afghan Taliban. I'm not making this up. You can find it. Where America, and this is right at the height of the surge in Afghanistan. So some of these Afghan Taliban said, well, hell, instead of getting JDAM bombed by the Americans, we could be backed by them if we just move 1,200 miles west from here. So they hip scopped, uh, you know, hop, skipped, and jumped over Iran and Iraq and went to Syria. So America was allied with um, the Afghan Taliban in Syria fighting against the Afghan Hazaras, who were our allies for 20 years in the Afghan war. Just as lunacy. this all shook out. You just, couldn't make it up. Just lunacy. Just this lunacy. It, it, it reminds me of that. It reminds me of the LA Times headline that said, you know, uh, CIA backed militia in Syria fights Pentagon backed militia right. in Syria. And it was, and who was it? It was the Kurds, the YPG Kurds fighting against Al Qaeda terrorists. Yeah. And then yeah. when, um, when Rex Tillerson said, we're not ever leaving, in, I'm going to say this is the beginning of 18, the Turks took that. To mean, and, and he said it was in the name of Iran, but the Turks took that to mean America's going to be allied with the Syrian Kurds and help them create their little pseudo state allied with the Turkish PKK on the other side of the border, which they considered to be an absolute intolerable provocation. And then so they launched a major offensive to kick the Syrian Kurds first out of Afrin on the west side of the Euphrates, which the Kurds had taken violently, by the way, but then. Who was it that took it? It wasn't Turkish infantry regulars. It was the Al-Qaeda shock troops. Yeah. Came the in moderate rebels. Cleanse, that's right. The moderate <laughs> rebels came in to cleanse the people out of Afrin and including yeah. murdered civilians and sexually mutilated the uh, female uh, soldiers. The YPG Kurds are kind of Marxist feminist types, you know, in a way. And so they have a lot of female fighters among their ranks and yeah. they were, you know, horribly tortured and murdered by these guys. And, and this is this this is the side in that headline. This is the CIA side that you're talking about, Aaron. That the DOD side was fighting against. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, we're going to take some calls. And uh, so when I bring you in, remember to unmute yourself. You can hit the bu- the microphone button in the bottom right. I'm going to go in a different order than is currently there because I want to bring in people who haven't spoken here before. So Andrew, I'm going to bring you in first. And followed by, afterwards, I'm going to bring in Andre and then Andy. So, Andrew, you're up, and remember to unmute yourself. Hello, can you hear me? Yes. Hi, thanks for your time. Three quick things. First, I think it's so great that both of you come from opposite ends of the political spectrum and you're doing this together, elevating each other's work. Uh, I was a Bernie person in 2015, 16, and I love Scott Horton's work. It's really important that we do this kind of thing. Uh, anti-partisanship is the future in the United States, I think. Um, secondly, a lot of the hawks on Ukraine, uh, they kind of want to have their cake and eat it too. They say that we need to station troops in Ukraine to prevent a Russian invasion. And they also at the same time advance this uh, domino theory that they say that if we don't do that, what's going to stop Russia from going to Poland? And it's this kind of sleight of hand magic trick where they say that putting boots is a magic bullet, but then for some reason the boots we already have in Poland isn't sufficient. 
So that doesn't even make any sense, but they're so aggressive on this and they can't use the same line as they did in Syria because their guy kind of owns the country right now, you know? So that's the second thing. Third, really quick. Did you hear that Alex Jones said that uh, Kiev uh, in Ukraine might stage a false flag attack with crisis actors and everything to, uh, well, wait, no, that was John Kirby, the spokesperson of the Pentagon. So, and when uh, asked for a source, they say that you're uh, you're on the Russia's side if you don't believe this, yeah, and they can't yeah. tell you because uh, sources and methods, which is what they always say. So, thanks so that's much. That's the that's thanks, Andrew. That's the playbook that Russia Gate normalized, where if you don't accept U.S. intelligence claims on faith, you're repeating Russia Gate right. talking points, and it's put the media in an awkward position now because they accepted Russia Gate, they normalized it for so long, and they normalized all of its sources and methods, including basically accusing anyone who questions U.S. intelligence community of being a Russian asset, that now that they're starting to, you know, remember what journalism is, that you don't just act as state stenographers, now they're being called Russian puppets. And you saw a little bit of a backlash to that yesterday when both uh, Ned Price and Jen Psaki uh, tried that. It was pretty funny. And by the way, let me say something about John Kirby. He said the most amazing thing this week when Biden sent 3,000 more troops to Eastern Europe. And of course, they're not sending these troops to Ukraine because they've already taken that off the table. So they're sending this, uh, these troops to other countries, which doesn't make sense if, you're, if, the whole, if the whole thing is that it's Ukraine that's supposedly at risk. So what right. is sending troops to other countries going to – how will that protect Ukraine? You know what John Kirby said? He said we said we're doing this to send a message that NATO matters. Right. That NATO hey, listen, matters. Well, look, I mean, and I'm I just think... wondering. I'm just wondering. Just like last thing is that if I'm a if I'm a soldier, and I'm being separated from my family to go overseas, for however long these deployments are, these deployments are, and this, my stated mission is to, is PR to show that NATO matters. I got to be pissed off. And yeah. it, to me, it's such it's it's such a sign of contempt for soldiers and their sacrifices, personal sacrifices, and just what a joke. This whole thing is that we need to send people abroad to show that NATO matters. It's yeah. such a it's such a telling admission. In reality, well, the fighters. Oh, I was just going to say that. Um, you know, I know a guy actually who's being deployed there right now. He's on his way there, and and he sure as hell resents it, just like you. Uh, you know, are uh, assuming that he would there, Aaron. There's no question about that. Um, you know, I literally know at least one individual involved in this who feels exactly as you're assuming there about being used in this way. But the, I think the realistic and important point to make here about that is that, yes, it's a cynical PR move, but it's a cynical PR move for what? It's a cynical PR move to cover for the fact that Biden is doing the right thing and backing down here. And what Putin really wants is an assurance that with or without the INF Treaty, that America is not going to put medium range missiles in Europe. And they have this huge loophole, which is the MK-41 missile launcher that they use for anti-ballistic missile missiles that they have stations in Romania and Poland for, that those can also be used to launch Tomahawk cruise missiles tipped with H-bombs. And Putin has said explicitly, repeatedly, that's the problem. And now that Donald Trump ripped up the INF treaty, there is no treaty keeping mid-range yep. intercontinental or mid-range missiles out of Europe. And so he says, you know, um, First of all, he wants to know they're not going to go into Ukraine, but secondly, wants to know that they're not going to go into Romania and Poland. And the other day, 
the American counterproposal was leaked to a Spanish newspaper and Ray McGovern analyzed it for antiwar.com. So did Dave DeCamp. I did a little Twitter thread on it. If people want to check that out where I go through it. And essentially on all the important points, you know, they bluster and talk tough all the way through there, but on all the important points, they're backing down and they're saying, you know, Oh, we have an open door policy to uh, Ukraine, but not that we're bringing Ukraine into NATO or anything, but just, you can't, Make us promise not to. Okay, whatever. <laughs> right. And then, but on the important point, um, yes, we want to work on a deal on these missiles. And in fact, let's work on a deal for verification. In other words, the Americans are explicitly saying we will welcome Russian officials to come and inspect the sites and verify the absence of Tomahawk cruise missiles being deployed here, et cetera, et cetera, like this. So, um, in other words, and also, uh, as Aaron, I know you know, we're down to the last treaty. All the others are expired and gone. We have one treaty outstanding that limits the numbers of strategic nuclear weapons on both sides, and that's land, sea, and air. And miss, that means, um, uh, you know, uh, missiles and uh, air-delivered bombs and all of them. Uh, and it's the, it's the New START Treaty. And it limits us to, I think, uh, it's 4,000 deployed and, and 7,000 total with 3,000 in reserve, something like that. Or maybe strike that in reverse at 3,000 deployed and another 4,000 in reserve kind of thing. Um, and Trump had promised to let that expire. And this is the greatest thing that Joe Biden ever did in his life other than get us out of Afghanistan was that he saved that treaty. And Putin had said, please save this treaty, man. You don't want to let this treaty expire. Come on. And Biden said, yeah, no, you're right, and saved the New START Treaty a year ago. And in this proposal, they say, let's have more talks and so that we can extend the thing into the future and maybe even add a new treaty and like this. So, you know, is that all treason because Biden is a sock puppet of Vladimir Putin or that's actual adults acting like it and taking care of business? Because at some point, all this political theater and all these lies and all this propaganda and all these coup d'etats got to stop. And somebody has to sign a nuclear weapons treaty and not throw it away. And you saw a little bit of this even during the height of Russiagate, where you could see Dianne Feinstein and Chuck Schumer and a couple of the more senior Democrats saying, well, yeah, but I mean, we still want to try to save these treaties, right? <laughs> like we're not, we're not, yeah. you know, because you're a, you're a Russian, you're a Russian puppet, but can you maybe for a second, <laughs> Yeah. Make an agreement with Russia instead of yeah, about tearing limiting up our ability treaties. to shoot at yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. because yeah. that's the right thing to do. And, you know, yeah. Trump also let the Open Skies Treaty expire, which is something that Eisenhower thought up and Reagan or maybe Bush senior. I think Reagan signed that allowed for overflights so that each side could reassure themselves that the other side is not preparing for war, not mobilizing their forces for war. And Trump let that expire on the theory that, well, America has more and better satellites than the Russians, so we can see everything they're doing anyway. Why should we let them see us? And the answer is because, dummy, that transparency is helping keep you safe. Because yeah. all that means is at least there's a very strong likelihood that they have to now assume one posture more hostile on our part than really is existing at any given time because they can't see it. So what the hell? You know, I mean, this is all it really does come down to like the childish versus the adults in the room 
when it comes to any of this stuff. And and I hate to say it because for all of his flaws, and we could do a whole other couple of hours on his flaws, Biden is doing the right thing and climbing down here. And he's sending a few thousand troops there as a token, essentially, to make you know max boot and his friends feel better while he climbs <laughs> down and does the right thing so well that's encouraging know, I, think, I, hadn't, I hadn't considered that that's encouraging yeah, that's a good i agree. Guys, good way to I, I really yeah. mean it you got to read antiwar.com all the time i mean it's just <laughs> true it's just the fact that our well, here, here. Yeah. are the ones yeah. who, who you know doug bondo and ted carpenter and uh, ted snyder and uh um daniel larison um and ray mcgovern these are the men who know the time period and they have the best of the best in the world on all of this stuff every day so you're here you're here yeah um, i've got one last point about the dishonesty of the media is that they will punish biden for not being aggressive uh in this situation even though it is the right thing to do just yeah. like they did in afghanistan and it's the dishonesty of the media that will praise him yeah. for saying he's going to exclusively pick a female black supreme court pick no matter how you feel about that they'll praise him on that and then omit the fact that the people that these troops are going to back up potentially supposedly are all aligned with neo-nazis literal that, neo-nazis yeah, so thank you so much for your uh, thank you and let me say one more thing to aaron real quick and i'll try to go fast here about the mccarthyism thing that you know, to me, this is, I'm so sick of it, but it's just, it's so silly to me. I, it doesn't really make me angry anymore, but I just don't know. What, it's frustrating, I guess, that this works on anyone at all right now when communism is dead and gone. The Soviet Union ceased to exist a full 30 years ago, last Christmas. And at the time that the Soviet Union existed, especially back, you know, in the early days after World War II, there were people in America who were ideologically committed to the Soviet project, but certainly not to the degree the way McCarthyism portrayed it or anything like that, and never a threat to the American way of government or any of those things. However, in the current circumstances, there quite literally is no cult of Putin in America. The Flat Earth Society has got a 100,000 times the number of adherents as the We Love Vladimir Putin movement <laughs> in America. There just isn't one. Because look, what ideology does he represent? He's essentially a center-right nationalist Republican, capitalist, yeah. Orthodox yeah. Christian. Okay, yep. well, that's yep. essentially a white European civilization you're describing there. It's not the alien civilization of totalitarian Marxism under Joseph Stalin. It's just George Bush not. Jr. fell in love with him. And that's right. That's right. He, and, he saw into his soul. He saw into his and soul. And Barack Obama came to power and said, here's our big reset button. We want to get along with you. And it wasn't until Hillary Clinton completely screwed Medvedev by lying to him and tricking him into supporting the resolution for the war in Libya and then yeah. using that resolution as an excuse yeah. to wage a full regime change war against Gaddafi and Tripoli that made a total monkey out of Medvedev and brought Putin back from the parliament an extra term early and with this much more of a chip on his shoulder about yep. dealing with the Americans. And so, yep. um, you know, the thing about it is that if you look at any of the critics – of American policy on Ukraine and Russia and Eastern Europe, et cetera. There ain't that many. You can count them on a couple of hands, maybe three or four. Okay. And if you look at them, none of them 
as individual human men and women, none of them have an ideological affiliation to Russia that you could identify in any way. Of All course. The, they're not even Eastern Orthodox Christians, even. You know what I mean? There is yeah. nothing there at all. There's only a willingness to tell the truth about what the United States of America has done there. And in fact, you know, I know it's just the algorithm talking and everything, but whenever I go on YouTube, they constantly show me the John Mearsheimer speech, why the crisis with Russia is all the West's fault. And it has something million views. I think yep. four or five million views on it. Well, who's John yep. Mearsheimer? John Mearsheimer is the dean of the realist school of foreign policy thought in the United States of America for the last generation from the University of Chicago. And his take is the same as my take, that Bill Clinton's NATO expansion is the original sin here. And America is the provocative force behind all of these moves. I'm not saying he agrees with me on every dotted I and cross T, but essentially, yes. And the same thing for Jack Matlock, the former ambassador to the Soviet Union, the second to the last ambassador to the Soviet Union. Same for Ray McGovern, the former chief of the CIA's Soviet division. Same for Chas Freeman, who was about to be the head of the National Intelligence Council under Obama before the Israel lobby sabotaged him, but who went to China with Nixon to shake hands with Mao Zedong and was his translator there and was one of the highest level foreign service officers you know, of our generation. Um, yep. and, and on down the list of people who, you know, are not, oh, you know, the guy from antiwar.com, the guy from all, you know, Bill Bradley and, and you know, all these former politicians agreed about this. Um, and one more thing, if you look at my Twitter feed at Scott Horton Show and then click media, where it shows, you know, pictures I've posted lately, just page down just a little bit and you'll see where I posted this great open letter from 1997 where some of America's greatest hawks said not to expand NATO. And it includes Robert McNamara, the butcher of Asia. It includes mm -hmm. Paul Nitza that wrote NSC 68. And it includes Stansfield Turner, that former head of the CIA and Robert Gates, the former head of the CIA and all of these former hawks saying, hey, Soviet Union's gone. We don't have to do this. So you had people like Pat Buchanan who said we should abolish NATO immediately and completely abolish the empire and come home. But even short of that, you had Robert Gates's of the world and Robert McNamara's saying we should not be doing this. This is unnecessarily provocative. And as George Kennan warned in 1998, if we do this, once the Russians start reacting against our spreading our military alliance into their sphere of influence, then they will react. And then all the people telling us now that our NATO expansion is fine and harmless and that the Russians have nothing to fear will be the same ones telling us, see, this is how aggressive the Russians are. And this is why we have to do this to defend yeah. Europe from their aggression. But then, as Kennan said, but that's just not right. And that was right. in 1998. Telling our past, his future. Yep. And the fact that all these hawks from 1997, 1998, um, now that they would be well to the uh, left of the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party has gotten so much more right wing when it comes to Ukraine and Russia and NATO. That just says something about where we're at. The, the fact that so many hawks could be less hawkish than the Democrats of today. It's um, it's yep. scary. We have a lot of callers, so I want to try to get to more. So okay, Andre... Great. Andrew, thank you. 
And Scott, I know you ha- have limited time, so whenever you have to jump off, um, okay, just no let problem. me know. So Andre, okay. I'm, bringing, I'm bringing you in next, and remember to unmute yourself when you come in. Andre, are you there? So Sounds Andre, like they're coming there, for you, Aaron. Oh, I, that's my block, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to mute. Ah, forget it. Okay, Andre, if you're there, I'm going to give you five more seconds to come in. You have to unmute your microphone, which you do by pressing the microphone in the bottom right. Five, four, three, two, one. Okay, Andy, you are up next. And remember to unmute yourself. Hey, uh, thanks for having me. Um, I just want to say, like, I'm a huge Scott Horton fan from way back. And um, I just want to say before I ask my question, Scott, I really miss your really long non-interview shows. (laughs) So if you ever do those again, me and my wife both really miss them. So (laughs) you got two votes for those shows, man. Thank Um, you. Yeah, I'm strongly considering getting back into doing that because – I am a really a AM radio guy and a pirate radio guy, and and um, I quit doing that the live show to write the book back in 2016. But now that that's all over with, I'm really going to try to look for a real radio network, a nationwide na- radio network, to get on this year. And then I would like to do a, a real radio show. In other words, three hours with commercials and see if I can make a living and do a real show again because that's a lot of fun. Well, I mean, I, in your defense, or in, in, for you, like my wife is a, an artist, and when we first started dating, she wasn't super political and would listen to NPR all day, and in in the studio while she worked. And I switched her over to start listening to you, and it totally changed her politics. So anyway, man. Cool. Um, but one question I have. That's I mean, great. Well, nice little, to meet you, and tell her hi. Yeah. We, we, you and I have corresponded like back in the day. I have kids now and stuff, so I'm not as online as I used to be. Anyway, but the question, one question I have, I mean, this is kind of a little wacky, but it's just something I've always been kind of curious about. Like uh, in my earlier 20s, like after 9-11, I was more of kind of a truther and I I'm definitely more skeptical of, of what happened in 9-11. But then the more I actually kind of educated myself and, and started like reading books and stuff, I, I kind of got out of that. Um, or came to have a more, I guess, realistic view of 9-11. But I, I got to say, man, like, and you you kind of going through it, it kind of gave me flashbacks to thinking about this. Like, seeing, like, the U.S. just on a dime turn during the War of Terror on terror towards backing al-Qaeda, it's really the only time in my, like, political life that I've sort of regressed in my like kookery <laughs> and I, it really made me kind of go back to thinking that maybe Al Qaeda and I also reading management of savagery kind of brought some of this stuff back to me, you know, thinking uh-huh. great book. Maybe, yeah. 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 And I mean, Max, I don't think goes full, you know, truther as far as even maybe I would be not consider myself now, but just wondering A, I guess, just to what degree Al-Qaeda has always been sort of like out of the Mujahideen, some sort of a a 
asset or some sort of has some relationship to CIA or or, or to some organization. Yeah. And and I guess the, the other question I would have for you, if, if if you totally don't agree with that at all, would be then like what is really and maybe this is too much to get into right now, and I apologize, but it's like what is really the 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 key with Saudi Arabia, because I actually think it was an economist on your show that I heard kind of poo-pooing the, the petrodollar. So it's kind of amazing that like after even the 28 pages come out and all this stuff that literally like neither political party seems willing to, I mean, not to even totally buck, but even to like get away from it at all, the kind of Israeli, Saudi, network, you know, and, and even Obama saying, well, we had to, you know, go after Syria to like show that we were tough on Iran, essentially for Israel, you know what I mean? So I'm just kind of curious, like, mm -hmm. if you told if you at all are kind of sympathetic towards a light trutherism or whatever you would call that, of, yeah. of, you know, yeah, that's a great or, question. you know, and if you're if yeah. you're against it, what you think kind of the linchpin is of of, of the underlying you, you know, cynical, not or, or hidden uh, relationship. So that's all I have to say. Yeah. Big fan of both of you guys. I'm really grateful that, you know, that you guys are, are uh, on here. Great. Thanks, man. Good to talk to you. And um, it's a fair question. And Aaron, at some point, stop me if I just am rambling on way too much because it's such a big thing. And I guess I, I should plead, I, I should plead guilty too that I don't ever address this because I have a tradition of not addressing this because back in earlier days, it was a way to just get bogged down arguing with the most irrational people. And I just would kind of explain my point of view on the thing, but not ever really, you know, argue about and discredit the other point of view on it. Like, let people think what they want. I just, I don't want to hear it. I get too, too much other stuff on my plate to be like the anti-truther guy or whatever. You know what I mean? It's never been my thing. But so I have left it unaddressed. So I understand why that's might be kind of frustrating to you that I don't, even in the books, I just say, yeah. And then September 11th happened, of course. And, and then you're going to have to just go read a lot of other people's journalism about that. I'm not taking on the role of explaining exactly who did what that day. It's just not. Uh, and, and, and Max, I should say my reading of the management of savagery is that essentially the kooks by glomming on to every conspiracy theory under the sun undermined all the real questions about what was going on there in terms of what motivated the attack by a bunch of anti-American terrorists. And I forget if he gets into this or not, but I think he does that. And if there was really kind of a hidden story behind the attack, it was something specific, like what role did Saudi intelligence play and why did they do so? And what really was going on there? And you have people chasing their tail, arguing about, Donald Rumsfeld shot a missile at the Pentagon while he was sitting in it. And all of this just garbage about the bombs in the towers and building seven and all these just red herrings that never went anywhere. You know, loose change. They made four versions of that movie. None of them got a single fact right at all, except the date of the attack. I mean, it's four versions of the same film. and It is still just wronger and wronger and wronger all the time. It's just unbelievable. And that sucked up. And this is, I think, Blumenthal's point. That idiocy sucked up all this energy from one asking, well, 
how is this Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan and George Bush and Bill Clinton's fault in terms of backing these guys in the first place? And then also, especially Bush Sr. and Bill Clinton for waging the policies that turned them against us and made them deadly enemies of the United States. And um, so none of those real questions were asked. And then on the inside job question, if you were going to ask smart inside job questions, they would have revolved around the Saudis. And, you know, to be perfectly honest with you, that's my wife's specialty. And she's written a thing about the 28 pages for antiwar.com that I regard as like the definitive take on the 28 pages once they got declassified. And she is really hot on the idea that, you know, Bandar did this and he did this on purpose. And there are enough ties between Saudi intelligence and the hijackers to say that this is what was going on. And they got these paymasters at the embassy and they did the trial run. And you got the Saudi house down in Florida where they left in a hurry and all of these things. And I think those dots connect, but I'm not exactly so sure what they mean. And I think that um, if you, my, I think the most obvious interpretation so far is that when the San Diego hijackers, the Flight 77 hijackers, you see what I mean? And what Max means about obscuring the story? Well, if a missile hit the Pentagon, then who cares what the CIA knew about the hijackers on the plane that hit the Pentagon? Which is, of course, the real question, you morons, you know? Anyway, sorry. So the the thing was the CIA followed those two men from the big Malaysia meeting where they plotted that attack and the coal attack both, followed them to Bangkok, and then presumably straight to California. They claim they lost them in Thailand. Yeah, right. They, and then they landed in LAX and then they moved to San Diego and they were in the country for a year and a half. And it was, it seems clear that the CIA did everything they could to keep the reality of these men and who they were and what they were up to away from the FBI during this time. And the simplest explanation for that, if you're not assuming your worst conclusion first, but you're just working toward a conclusion, would be that the CIA was trying to recruit them, that these you know, essentially not spies, these analysts running Alex Station, the Bin Laden group, thought that they could turn these guys and use them as double agents in Al-Qaeda. And then that ended up not working and falling apart. And then what they do? They like kind of swept it under the rug and kind of shrugged and then still didn't tell the FBI that these guys were in the country. And then you look at like um, with Minneapolis, where they could tie they could have been able to tie Zarqawi to the hijackers. And the agents in Minneapolis told the, you know, asked the headquarters, can we have authority to search this guy's computer under the Foreign hey, Intelligence Scott, Surveillance Act? Can, and they can I say, ask you one question? Yeah. Oh, sure. Can I just ask you one question? Just, I, yeah. I, I'm not being argumentative here, but I'm, I'm just kind of actually curious. Yeah, yeah go, ahead, so go ahead. If um, I, I've totally read Larissa's uh, thing about the 28 pages, and I, I, I totally think it's great. And that's kind of how I know about this. But, so one question I, I've always kind of had, and, and it's like, so if it is Saudi intelligence that is, you know, behind it, why did they wait until their, the son of their homeboy, George Bush, was, I mean, do you think that they thought, oh, well, we're going to do this and the Bush administration will be more amenable to it? I mean, it just seems well, that's kind problem, of like, right? it, seems this is like why, dick, this is, it seems like a dick move, like a real dick yeah, move no, to look, your buddy. You know what I mean? That's yeah, not, no, that's I mean, look, this is, really you're right. You're and, right. And, and, what, so here, and I will just say, for me, as kind of a more of a kook, it makes me kind of think they were like, 
even maybe if if the highest echelons of the Bush administration didn't know there was somebody around, say like Rich Blee or somebody being like, yeah, you can do this. We'll make sure that it's okay. You know what I mean? That and, and that they maybe if they had done it in the Clinton administration, they didn't have close enough ties to not have you know whatever the right but see that just doesn't hold up right i mean that's crazy right i mean that's that's the thing where that's exactly the point where you have to go to make this make sense if you're prince bandar if 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 you're bandar and you're gonna do this operation to knock these towers down i mean they killed three thousand but they could have fallen faster and killed ten thousand or fifteen and now you got what? A handshake from Dick Cheney that says, go ahead, pal. I'll take one on the chin and not mine. And and then you're just going to risk the... Absolutely not do anything to Saudi Arabia. Don't worry. We'll hit Iraq, not Saudi. We'll totally let you get away with it. Pinky swear... Scott, I'm going to come in here because the audio keep... is breaking up a little yeah, bit. Yeah, somebody keeps calling. The audio. Yeah, somebody keeps calling me. Um, okay. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> so, so the thing is, I just don't, I just don't buy that, man. Honestly, like I think Dick Cheney is a ruthless SOP, and morally speaking, I think if you look at the way they exploited 9/11, he might as well have done it in that sense. However, I mean, really, you're going to hit the Pentagon, and you're going to, you might kill a four-star general's wife. And then he's just going to let you get away with that. The highest treason in the history of all of mankind, the vice president of the United States working with Al-Qaeda terrorists and Saudi intelligence to, to hit the Pentagon and to knock down towers full of thousands of innocent American civilians. I mean, if you were a four-star general, if you were Dick Cheney, would you take that risk that, yeah. that no one at the Pentagon is going to march across the bridge and come and put you up against the wall and shoot you in the face? I don't think so. I don't. I guess think so. that's I a, the courage. I, I think that's a good. Like I think that's that, a good. Uh, Andy, Wait, I, can, I, I, can I just ask you sorry, one other I, question? No. This, this isn't related to that. Well, I exactly, want to move. But I just. I want to move. Can on I just? From the I just have one other thing. I just want to. I'm just curious about. It's, this isn't really about 9/11 though. Like one other question I just had though is just in relation to, to Syria, like of of all the people like Lawrence Wright and the people that kind of got famous off of. Uh, you know, taught, writing about 9-11, I never saw any of those guys, the people that I read that kind of made me feel more uh, of a realistic view of 9-11. I didn't see them like yelling like their pants were on fire that like, whoa, now we're working with these guys that I spent all these years. You know what I mean? And, and I'm just kind of curious. And I, sorry, I'll totally go after this. But that that was another thing that, I, that always was kind of strange to me was that none of these people that like supposedly had were these journalists that built up their name. Lawrence Wright's the one that really comes to mind. I saw Lawrence Wright write some stuff about, you know, the NSA and this or that later in The New Yorker, but I never saw him be like, whoa, like now we're literally backing these guys that I, you know, made my my name yeah. talking about how crazy. Well, I don't know about- You know what I mean? And, and I'm, I'm done after this. I don't know Sorry, about thanks Wright, a lot. but thanks, I guys. do know- there, Sure, and, and I don't know about Lawrence Wright, but there were a lot of people who objected. There were, uh, you know, essentially anyone who wasn't directly kind of- interested in being on the wrong side of this issue but who also knew the first thing about it who were like wow this is impressively crazy policy here in syria 
Uh, so, um, you know, it is a fair point, though. It is a fair point, though, that in the mainstream media, and, and you write about the sky in your book. It just there was <laughs> it was such common, it was such a commonplace journalistic practice to play down the fact that the insurgency was dominated by Al Qaeda. And one of the few people to acknowledge the facts were people like Robert F. Worth, who wrote in the New York Times Magazine that if the U.S.-backed rebels in Latakia were successful, the result would have been sectarian mass murder. But statements right. like that were pre- in the mainstream were pretty rare. I mean, there was a pretty big concerted attempt to portray the U.S.-backed insurgency as moderate rebels. And, and, and you've experienced it, I'm sure, when you try to tell the truth, the attacks you get from people. Sure. Um, you know, a hey, Aaron, your, you know, I mean, yeah. to be real, real about this, why does America have this anti-Shiite policy? How could America's establishment prefer Al-Qaeda to the Ayatollah if they're forced to choose, I guess? Mm-hmm. And the answer is because of the influence of the Saudi and especially the Israel lobby. America's worst war hawks are the neoconservatives, and they are the vanguard of the Zionist movement in the United States. They are I only the disagree. militarist I disagree PR arm of the Likud party in this I country, essentially. I, I, I think that Saudi and Israel have an influence, but I don't think their influence can explain it alone. I think the main factor is that all these countries that the U.S. is targeting and is willing to use – fascists, whether it's in Ukraine or in Syria against with going with Al Qaeda, is that all these countries are impediments to U.S. hegemony and the U.S. ability to use force in the region wherever it wants. I mean, that's why the U.S. wanted to bleed Syria is because Syria is close. I don't think they even cared about Syria so much, but they cared about the fact that Syria was very close with Iran and Hezbollah. And if you, you know, if you if you both, you know, destroy a key ally and you also draw in Iran and Hezbollah, then you bleed them and you weaken their ability to be a deterrent to U.S. hegemony and control of the region. That, to me, is the is the main factor. That that's where I would I would disagree with you. Is I don't just think it's it's Israel and Saudi Arabia. Um. Yeah. Well, I think that's right. Except then again, go back and look at all of the leading hawks in America and their role in this and and promoting it. And it's all the same guys who lied us into Iraq. And Absolutely. they're all essentially Absolutely. from the same few think tanks and uh, the same few, you know, notoriously neoconservative media organizations and magazines. In fact, I remember explicitly in uh, the summer of 2013 during the first false flag sarin attack there in Ghouta that it was so blatant and obvious that the only people who were pushing for war were the Israel lobby. That I was even sort of speculating because I forgot who wrote it now. It may have, been, may have been Josh Rogan or someone who had written a story about how Obama had asked the Israel lobby, the Israel affinity organizations to help with the push for war. And then the whole thing well, failed and yes, flustered the intelligence. and And yes, I was the- even joking at the time that I actually thought Obama and maybe half joking. I still kind of think that actually maybe he was kind of sabotaging them a little bit and asking them to stick their neck out for a thing that he didn't really want to do. And he just wanted to help to demonstrate to the American people that who really wants a war in Syria right now? It's the same few neoconservative hawks and media organizations, the New Republic and, you know, the American Enterprise Institute and the Washington Institute for Near East Policy and 
you know, these very same usual suspects, commentary magazine and whatever. Everybody else, it was crickets. And I mean, Breitbart and all of AM talk radio, in other words, the American right, they were all against it. You know, it was yes, just they were, the but that might just be, but that might just be because Obama was president. If McCain was president, well, that was a big I'm, part. I'm not, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure. And also, sure. but look, it is true that the so-called intelligence uh, that first accused Syria of chemical attacks that did come from Israel. So Israel had a major role in this. I guess where I differ from you is I think they're only allowed to have an influence in this respect because they serve goals that the rest of the U.S. establishment already accepts. And I do think that the push for bipartisan uh, war in th- th- that that war in Syria is pretty bipartisan. It goes beyond just you know the project for new American century crowd. Although they do have a major influence, I I just have a, I, I think I, I I slightly disagree with you there. But let's let's take more callers because we have a lot more to go, and I want to get to as many people as we can. So Brett, you are next, and remember to unmute yourself when you come in. Hey guys, how's it going? Hey, Brett, how you doing? Good. Thank you for having me on. Uh, I just had a quick question. I was just wondering, um, on the uh, operation that they did yesterday in Syria, they claim that the reason that the uh, civilians passed was because um, when the mil- when the United States military showed up, is that he um, allegedly had a, like a suicide bomb vest on and exploded that. And uh, based on the past operations where we've heard similar stories like this that have later been proved like the Kabul um, airstrike is a recent one where they say that um, the reason why civilians died there at first was because we blew up the car and then the car had a bomb in it causing collateral damage. And that ended up being proven wrong. So I was just wondering if you guys have, um, if any new information or what you guys speculate if it, that uh, he actually did blow himself up with the vest or do you think it was more so probably just our strikes on the building. I have to say, I do not know. And I think that either chance is 50-50 likelihood of, of uh, even the correct answer there. I wouldn't be surprised whatsoever if it was an absolutely proven and provable fact that that's what happened. Or if they just blasted them and then made up that lie to cover their ass. I think you could take either way, flip a coin. I guess we'll find out. I totally agree. It's you always have to be skeptical of U.S. government claims in cases like these. But the official story also is totally plausible. It makes sense and, to me that yeah. an ISIS leader would be carrying a suicide vest. Yeah, yeah. These ISIS guys are absolutely ruthless. As I said, I mean, they made their name suicide bombing crowds of Shiite pilgrims and this kind of thing. They are they are absolutely ruthless murderers. Uh, you know, Patrick Coburn. Uh, I, to finish that sense, when they took over Western Iraq, for example, the, the violence with which they did so, Patrick Coburn compared them to, he called them the Islamist Khmer Rouge, where they were just, it was just madness. They just shoot and kill anybody, throw people off roofs for fun and whatever kind of craziness, um, you know, like adolescent uh, psychopathy, um, you know, Lord of the Flies on, on full, you know, unleashed mode with with no tempering force. You know, uh, about the worst humanity, uh, the worst of kind of mob mentality of, of ruthless violence against innocent people, you know, really bad guys. So, yeah, would one of them do that and blow up his own wife and kids and call it, you know, being a martyr to his God or whatever? Sure. Definitely. Yeah, I just wanted to hear you guys take. I agree. Probably 50-50 chance. I guess we'll just have to keep our eyes yep. peeled for any new information. Yep. 
All right. Thank All you, right. guys. Thank, thank, thank you, Brett. And uh, I'm just – we're up on – we're closing in on two hours, so I'm going to have sure. to go soon. So let's take as many yeah, more callers as we can in the time I'll we have I'll try to keep left. my answer shorter. Sorry. Yeah. I'm going to have to end this in 10 minutes. So let's see how many calls cool. we can take. So, Dave, I'm, you are coming in next. Okay? So remember to unmute yourself. And turn your uh, speaker volume down to just loud enough so we don't get an echo. Hi there. Hi, Dave. How's it going? We're good. Oh, How are you doing? Pretty good. Doing great. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to talk about the uh, the uh, Ned Price situation. Uh, what a performance. <laughs> that yeah. was so funny. <laughs> and oh my by God. The, let's praise Matt Lee. It was the great Matt Lee. You know, it it goes under the headline, you know, AP reporter or something. But this guy, Matt Lee, has been great for many years. And he was one of the only ones who would push back during the war in Syria and cite all these same absurdities that we've been talking about in the show today. And yeah, so did you, you know, uh, he really deserves a thanks for that. He's great. Absolutely. Did you see his performance, uh, I believe it was day before, uh, with uh, his questions to Ned Price about Amnesty International? Oh, no. Oh, yeah. They uh, totally uh, dis, uh, disavowed the report. And, uh, you know, I mean, they, they latch on every single other report Amnesty puts out, but uh, not this one. Yeah, just true. like the uh, just like the New York Times, they haven't reported on it yet either. So, but whatever, that's a whole nother well, I haven't, world. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I'm going to try to read it this weekend and get somebody on uh, next um, week to talk about it. But yeah, I just want I wanted to point out the uh, historical relevance of uh, uh, relevance of uh, Ned Price's uh, lack of evidence today. I mean, especially with Ukraine, you know, historically we've got. Uh, well, recently we have what Nit Wendy Sherman, who uh, was at the uh, Yalta conference, you know, Pinchuk's little thing, Victor Pinchuk, the oligarch out of Ukraine, and uh, repeated the uh, what the rumor from the Ukrainian general that uh, you know Russia was going to attack before the you know before the Olympics, even though I think the very next day uh, Z came in and completely denied any such thing going on at all. Mm-hmm. You know, that was the recent one. <laughs> And then we could go back to, uh, what, uh, Jim Inhofe. I don't know if you remember that guy, the senator, came out with all the Russian tanks are invading uh, <laughs> information, did a huge presentation on the floor at Congress and all that, or at the Senate or whatever. And and uh, When was that? That was, uh, I think, uh, 2015, maybe, right, right around yeah. in there, something like there that, you, okay. you know? Okay. And, mm-hmm. and then again, of course, then we have the famous stunt by John Kerry where, you know, he still has yet to produce satellite photos for MH17, you know, to this day. So, you know, I'm, I'm just uh, I'm really impressed with this whole new form of deterrence that, uh, you know, the U.S. has seemed to develop since the days of WMDs in Iraq, which seems to be, you know, pretty much propaganda, you know, empty propaganda at that. In order to uh, achieve these ends, I'm, I'm just uh, I'm kind of blown away. Mint Press well, did listen. a great article today with uh, about uh, Washington Post, New York Times, and the fact how they've been you know pretty much promoting war like 90% of the time or more in their in their pieces. And yeah, mm-hmm. I'm just blown away. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'll tell you what. I interviewed Dan McAdams recently, and he uh, is Ron Paul's uh, partner on the Liberty Report. And mm-hmm. uh, the the director of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity, and he was Ron Paul's foreign policy advisor in his congressional office for many years there, for the whole like Bush and early Obama years, and um, the first you know first half of Obama. And 
so he's pretty experienced up there. And, you know, he kind of went on this little soliloquy on my show about how, you know, what's funny about these people, man, is if you know them in real life, not have to just imagine them or God forbid, just read what they write. But if you talk to them, they're actually not psychopaths and monsters and throat slitting killers. They're decent people. It's just that like, and he's not trying to let them off the hook, right? He's just like trying to let me in on the insight of kind of, in a way, like how much trouble we're really in here, which is that like, if, if these guys were really monsters, they'd be easy to identify, you know, but instead they're ideological, but in a way they're like ideological moderates. They're, they're ideological Truman kind of center right Democrats, you know, and they believe in the American way. And they believe that the American way includes this kind of aggressive posture in foreign affairs at all times, always. And they just can't separate good intentions from troop deployments. I mean, those are just the same thing. They're sort of the same way that when Americans say, well, there ought to be a law, there ought to be a law. Like an opinion is a thing that you think other people should have to do, right? Rather than just something you think, it's something that you think for others. It's the same thing with the American foreign policy establishment. The way things should be in the world is the way that they should make it in the world. And that's it. And that the way he put it to me also was he said, so when a problem breaks out in Ukraine, Scott, you and I say, well, how is this? I'm paraphrasing Dan here, but how is this Bill Clinton's fault? How is this W. Bush and Obama and Trump and Biden's fault? What did the American empire, the true world superpower do leading up to this situation? Just so that we can look, yeah, we're critics and we're biased, but we want to understand the truth about what's really going on and who's reacting to who in what way, you know? Um, and so uh, that's how we look at it. And as he put it, they don't look at it like that. They just don't. They look at it like, well, we're the good guys. The bad guys are doing things. We must confront them. And so, yes, it is deterrence. We are moving our forward deterrence 7,000 miles east and west of here to encompass the entire planet Earth. But all we're doing is we're spreading our umbrella of peace. They even call it their nuclear umbrella, right? Anyone who's an ally of us, they're protected not by our anti-missile shield. That's not what that means. There's no umbrella. What they mean is that America is so powerful and armed to the teeth with H-bombs that no one would ever mess with us. And if you're an ally of us, then that means no one will ever mess with you. And so if we can spread our alliance everywhere we go to the tip of Southern Africa or to Vladivostok or however you say that, right, then that's fine. And if Putin is standing in the way of that, then he's the damn devil and he's going to have to move aside. And in fact, Carl Gershman, the head of the National Endowment for Democracy, wrote in the Washington Post in the before the coup of 2014, in October of 2013, at right when they screwed Yanukovych on the trade deal and started the protest movement, Carl Gershman wrote in the Post that if Vladimir Putin doesn't like these interventions in his near abroad, then he might find himself on the receiving end of one of these <laughs> regime changes in Moscow here yeah. soon. And he also fact, called, my, Scott, he also called Ukraine quote, the biggest prize. There you go. Of course, we have to take it away from that. Oh, thanks for saying that, because that reminded me of one more rant here real quick that go back to 2014 and look at you can find this online. It's the old Stephen Colbert show. And he interviews Gideon Rose, the editor of Foreign Affairs. And he's coming on just to explain America's Ukraine policy. And he says, Ukraine is Russia's girlfriend. We're breaking them up. 
and taking her away with us. Ukraine, Ukraine is Robin to Russia's Batman. And we're going to break up the partnership forever. And this is going to really weaken Russia. And it's going to be great. And Putin won't be able to do a damn thing about it because he'll be distracted with the Sochi Olympics and all of this stuff. Go and watch it. And it's, it's a perfect counterpart to the Victoria Newland F the EU phone call. And you can compare the arrogance of the two. That we can just do whatever we want and it's going to be fine and we're going to get away with it because what are they going to do about it? Is, you know, pregnant in every syllable out of their mouths. And that's how we she says, she even says, fuck the, you know? she even says, fuck the EU. That's right. And why does she say that, Aaron? She says that because the Germans are taking too long to do the coup <laughs> and we're sick and tired of waiting for them. So you mean the working, UN Charter? <laughs> that's right. We're working with the Vice President Joe Biden, yeah, Joe Biden and a guy yeah. named Robert Sari from the UN. I really ought to read about him. I think I read a short thing about him one time, but I don't remember what it said anymore. But Robert Sari from the UN, and we're working together to put this thing together. Yeah. And he's an American, so at the UN means that's his job. But he's you know America's guy there, um, and. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's the arrogance with which they approach this. And to me, see, this is worse. This reminds me of this old essay by Klaus, uh, Klaus Rinn called The Ideology of American Empire. And it was just about how these people are, these people who live in Georgetown, these people, who these weapons contractors and these spies and these State Department weenies and their pushy, bossy <laughs> Karen wives and how this is, you know, sort of like the worst of, of wokest center left liberalism in America now, but inflicted as a foreign policy on the planet. You know, it's this yeah. school marming kind of Wilsonian bossiness that the world, of course, despises. But that, of course, has no self-reflection, no ability to, to see why anyone would object to what they're doing. The answer, you know, to, I'll shut up after this one last thing. The answer is, in the words of Ann Applebaum, from the Washington Post on Twitter the other day, a couple weeks ago, that oh yeah, Putin knows he's the aggressor. He's the one who is <clears throat> the danger, and that everything we do in Europe is defensive and peaceful to defend the peaceful people from him and his aggression. Black and white, we are the truth. He is the lie, and we know, just like almost like a truther talking, right? We know that he secretly agrees with our assessment of the situation. He just won't admit it, you know? And so right. this is crazy. This is crazy. And it's, yeah, I just want to say, uh, you know? I just want to say real quick. Yeah. I think this all leads back to uh, Kissinger's philosophy on uh, history just doesn't exist. Doesn't matter. Uh, yeah, you know, I think that's right. It's subjective. They'll just change it to whatever you know, they want. And, uh, and it, it really did influence a lot of people in foreign policy, I think, in, in America, for sure. As far as having... I want to um, bring up uh, real quick, uh, since we're all talking about propaganda, you probably should take a, a look at uh, this guy. I'm not sure you're familiar with him. Uh, his name's Todd Leventhal. No, I don't know. Uh, used to work for uh, good old federal government in Iraqi disinformation. He did a uh, C-SPAN interview of in 1991 on Iraqi disinformation, and I highly suggest you watch it. It's quite entertaining. Uh, but I'd say he's like the godfather of this uh, this type of spin, you know, for sure. Interesting. He's been a, right. associated, I think, well, recently with the Integrity, Integrity Initiative. Oh, well, that's a... 
that's a uh, surefire disinformation operation out of the UK. Very involved yeah. in uh, very involved in in Syria, dirty war stuff, um, including the OPCW cover up. Um, right. We have to leave it here, though. Dave, great. thank you for calling in. Thank you. Have a great night. To the callers online, you too. To the callers online, let's get to you next time. I'm sorry we didn't have time for you today. It was. This I'm was sorry a long too. Show. I, I go on too long. That's, <laughs> That's why you're here, Scott. That's why we love All to right, listen good. to you. Uh, Scott, where can people find your work? Well, you know, I got chastised earlier that I say too many things and then nobody's going to look at any of them. So I'll just say a couple <laughs> of things. ScottHorton.org is where you can find my show. And I've got 5,600 and something interviews going back to 2003 for you. They're almost all of them on foreign policy this whole time. And uh, I wrote the book, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, which is now available also in audiobook. And it's endorsed by Daniel Ellsberg and Ron Paul and um, a lot of other great people like that who thought it was good, including you. And I'm going to quote what you said at the beginning of this show and add that to my quotes page and brag about it. Um, and so uh, that's a book. It's about all the wars. It's just like manufactured crisis. I mean, pardon me. That's that's Gareth Porter. Um, pardon me. Uh, the Management of Savagery by the great Max Blumenthal. Mine is the same book, only just written by me instead of by him. But it's essentially <laughs> the, the story of from from 1979 through today, what these bastards done did and why it is how it is and why you don't like it. It's, and so I yeah. hope you like it. All right. Scott Horton, thank you so much for giving us your time and insight today. I really appreciate it. And thanks to everybody for tuning in to AM Live on Colin, and I'll see you next time. Have a good weekend.